I really appreciate you joining into this series with me. The idea behind this series is I wanted to, uh, it, it grew out of actually the Lord's Prayer, where in the Lord's Prayer we pray, hallowed be your name. It's a prayer that we're asking that God's, the greatness of God's character, what he's done, who he is, his resume, his curriculum vitae, his CV. We're asking that the world see, that we see, that it be proclaimed as something that's different and set apart and, and, and holy unto itself, both H-O-L-Y and W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy unto itself. And so out of that, we said, how is it that we know who God is and what God has done? To some degree, we can see that in the world around us. And to some degree, we can understand that through just experience and self-examination. But truly, if we want to find out who God is, we need to go to God's revelation, Scripture, how God has revealed himself to us. And in that, we'll get a truer sense of who he is. So within this framework, within this concept, we need to be looking through the scriptures to find truth about God. And as we find that truth about God, then we will be in a position to better understand who he is. So there are certain truths that we have looked at together. And I want to explore those with you. The first truth that we discovered or or discussed was that God is love. We talked about what kind of loving God he is and what that means for God to be love. God to be loving is, is something that shows his concern about us. It shows his parental love for us. It shows his friendship and camaraderie love for us. That he's fond of us. And so those types of issues we've already talked about with God. And then we transition from that to the fact that God, even as he loves us, he hates sin. Sin is something that is evil, that is destructive, that, 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 that does no good for us. And a loving God hates evil and sin. And that's who he is. That's, that's on his CV. That's part of God. And then a third truth that we really carefully looked at is this recognition that God is just. Justice, in a sense, is a trait of consistency. Justice is the same thing happening each time. Justice is a recognition that, that, that things will be treated consistently regardless of who's involved. Justice for one is, should be justice for all. Hopefully we, we live in a system and in a world where it's not justice just for the rich or justice just for the poor or justice just for the needy or justice for the haves. It's not justice for the educated. It's not justice for the ignorant. It's not justice for the, 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 the socialite. And it's not just justice for the isolationist. We should have justice for everyone because justice see it as consistency. An unchanging 
consistent value. And that's the way God is. God is a consistent God. He is a just God. He's not simply just some of the time. It's inherent in his character. It's part of his fabric, of his essence, of his being. So with an understanding of that truth as well, we've got a loving God who hates sin because sin, by definition, is something that is ungodly. That's what makes it sin. It's something that is evil. If God is life, it's death. If God is truth, it's lie. Sin is not something that's good. And the truth of the matter is, sin properly, justly, incurs God's righteous or just wrath. That was last Sunday. That God's wrath is not... God's wrath is not one where he hates you or he hates me, but he hates sin. And he hates what sin does. And he hates if we embrace that sin. He hates what it does to us. And sin incurs God's wrath. It's always been that way. It always will be that way because it must be that way. That's the nature of things. It is just part of the warp and woof of the fabric of this universe, of our moral makeup, because it's the warp and woof of the fabric of God and his moral makeup. Righteousness is not something God just willy-nilly decides. David Letterman's line, that's more fun than humans should be allowed. It's funny, <laughs> Miss Carolyn. It's funny. But it, 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 it shows this subtle thought that we've got, often, as if God is some old man with a gray beard, sitting in a white robe in a celestial rocking chair, watching us down on this planet... And arbitrarily deciding, uh, nah, we're going to call that a sin. I'm not going to let him do that. That's more fun than humans should be allowed. <laughs> yeah, they can do that. No, 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 no. We're not going to allow that one. That's not what sin is. Sin is not some arbitrary decision by God about what we can and cannot do, should or should not do. Sin is a cancer. It is a marring. Um, it is a distortion. It is a, a, a more than a blemish upon truth of the moral character of God. God is a moral being. And he made us in his image and we're hardwired to be moral beings. So when someone takes the morality of God and disturbs it and distorts it and turns it into something that is evil, God justly brings his wrath upon that. 
Because God's not going to change and just become one who partners with sin. That's the nature of God. That's clear when we read his CV and his revelation. So the question becomes, how do these things merge together? How do we merge the fact that God is love with the fact that God hates sin with the fact that God is just, with the fact that sin is worthy of death, rightly, justly, should be condemned and dead. How do we merge that together? That is merged together on the cross of Christ in an idea that theologians call the substitutionary atonement. Now those are big words, but they come from small words. We all need to understand those words. Substitutionary comes from the word substitute. Do we have anybody in here who is below the age of, who is younger than college, who has, uh, goes to school. Come here. Come on. Come on. Come on, come on, come on, come on. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Yeah, come on, you can come up too. Come on, young lady, come on. This is, this will we'll do two for. All right, ladies first. Come here, come here. Uh, talk in that. Let's make sure it's working. Hello. You want to try it? Hi. Okay. Now, I want you all to look out there, and I want you all to help me with something. If you've got a teacher, and your teacher is sick, and someone else comes in to teach in the place of your teacher, what would you call the person who comes in? A substitute teacher. Very good. Would you agree? Yes. And what's your name? Ava. Ava, wonderfully done. And how old are you? Nine. Nine and? Eleven. And your name is eleven or that's your age? (laughs) Um, I am eleven and and my name is David. David. King David and Queen Ava, thank you very much. You may be seated. So a nine-year-old and an eleven-year-old understand a substitute teacher. Substitute is the root of substitutionary. Jesus is our substitute. It's as if we're the teacher, we're sick, we can't do it, we need a substitute. Instead, we're the sinner. We're not sick, we need, we're, we're ready to be dead. We're worthy of the punishment of death and it's rightly and justly coming. The wrath of God's going to be visited on sin, period. God can't change that. We can't change that. That's the whole reason he told them not to eat of the tree. God's judgment comes on sin and his judgment is death. So we are about to get it. Unless we can find a substitute. That substitute is Jesus 
who gets it on the cross. So that's substitutionary. He's substituting for us atonement. Atonement means to pay the price for sin. So when we write or read or talk of Jesus as a substitutionary atonement, we're saying that he's the substitute, he's taking the place, he's paying the price, atoning for our sins. Now, if that's the case, look at how this works with those truths. Because God loves us. If he didn't love us, he'd just destroy us. Issue his just judgment upon our sin. And bam, wipe us off. But because he loves us, and cannot live without with sin. He loves us. We're sinners. He can't live with sin. So Jesus, who is perfect, has no sin of his own to bear. Takes on our sin and fully pays the price. That's the substitute atoning for our sins. That is us being bought by the blood of Jesus. That is the redemption that is in Jesus. Those are the biblical terms for Jesus paying for the price of our sins and substituting himself to receive the wrath of God. This is the real wrath of God upon sin. When you read Luke 22, 41 through 44, something mind-boggling is about to happen at the cross. Look at Luke 22 with me. Jesus says the following. He kneels down and he prays. Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. The cup's coming. Whatever the cup is, it's coming. And Jesus knows it. Jesus is not saying, stop the cup from coming. Jesus is not saying, I don't want to drink the cup. Jesus is not saying, don't pour out the cup. Jesus is saying, don't let it stay on me. Remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, this is not about my will. This is about your will to be done. Jesus was not afraid to die. Jesus went to Jerusalem knowing he was going to die. 
He'd been telling his apostles for some time, I'm going to die. This is not Jesus afraid of death. This is Jesus recognizing that something beyond that is about to happen. There appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in an agony. And Greek word's really strong. Great travail. Think birth pains without an epidural times a hundred. He prayed more earnestly and his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Let this cup pass from me. I think we need to see what the cup is. The cup is the real wrath of God. It's the penalty for sin. The penalty for sin is not just merely a physical death. The penalty for sin is a true death that reaches to the core and essence of who we are. It's a separation from God. It's hell. When Jesus says, let this cup pass from me, I tell you something mind-boggling happens at the cross. It's a paradox. God can't change. God is one. And yet somehow, by becoming human, something will happen within the essence of the Godhead and the Trinity that is beyond our ability to understand. It was beyond Jesus' ability to understand. And that's why he's praying, God, I, I pray that when I take on the sins of the world that you'll remove your wrath from me at some point. But this is not about me. This is about you. I'm trusting you. I'm putting my faith in you. We fail to see Jesus if we fail to see he walked in perfect, obedient faith to God. I remember when I was first addressing this in college and I thought, do I have enough faith to really be having saving faith in God? And I read this work by a group out of Australia and they talked about how Jesus had perfect faith. Nobody else does. So when we get the righteousness of Jesus, we even get the righteousness of his faith. His perfect faith is counted to us. This is what's happening. So what is this cup that he's talking about? It's a concept we'll read about in the Dead Sea Scrolls. But the Dead Sea Scrolls get the concept from the Old Testament. The cup of God is the wrath of God upon sin. It's the judgment of God. Look at Psalm 11.6. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. This is God's judgment. This is the penalty of sin. 
This is the wrath of God. Look at another Psalm 75, 8. For in the hand of the Lord there is a cup with foaming wine, well mixed. And he pours out from it and all the wicked of the earth shall drain it down to the dregs. Jesus is about to drink the cup of God's wrath upon sin. Jesus is about to suffer. The death of Jesus is not simply the physical turmoil of um, what... Excuse me. (laughs) Pardon me. The death of Jesus on the cross is not just the physical turmoil of walking through a crucifixion. Yes, it's physically horrible. Yes, it hurts. Yes, it's painful. Yes, he was thirsty. Yes, he couldn't breathe. Yes, he suffocated. Yes, he got a spear in his side. Yes, he wore a crown of thorns. Yes, he had nails in his hands and he had nails in his feet. The physical agony was there. But it pales in comparison to the true spiritual agony of bearing the sins of the world in isolation from God the Father. Of bearing this penalty, of having the cup of wrath poured upon him. It's what Ezekiel calls the cup of horror and desolation, aloneness. It's what Habakkuk calls the cup of utter shame, That comes upon God's glory. When Jesus prays, let this cup pass from me. This is not Jesus praying to get out of the crucifixion. This is Jesus praying that God would deliver Jesus. After Jesus took on the curse of our sin. An Anglican bishop named Leslie Newbigin and preacher. Uh, He um, passed away, I think, about 20 years ago. But he wrote something that I thought was just a nice, profound turn. So I want you to see his words. He said, the Son of God, the Word of God made flesh, kneels in the Garden of Gethsemane. He wrestles in prayer. His sweat falls like great drops of blood. He cries out in agony, not my will, but thine be done. That is what it costs God to deal with man's sin. To create the heavens and earth costs him no labor, no anguish. He speaks and it comes. But to take away the sin of the world cost him his own lifeblood. What Jesus was about to do was harder than creating everything that is. So there's an Old Testament prophecy about the work of Jesus on the cross, this substitutionary atonement, Jesus as our substitute bearing our sin. And it's a passage that's often referred to as the passage of the suffering servant. This passage is found mainly in Isaiah 53. It actually starts a couple of verses in Isaiah 52. But in the passage, 
you read something very profound about Jesus and who's coming. I, w- I want to I show you something about it first. Um, it actually starts in 52.13. And it says the following. Let's see if we can lighten that just a little bit. Is that better? Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Evid in the Hebrew, servant. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. That which they've not heard, they understand. Now here's chapter 53. Who has believed what he has heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed. Now I want to pause for a moment. We are doing okay time-wise. So we're going to take a, a, um, a moment of a break to dig in a little extra deep, okay? We've been digging into theology. Now we're digging into a text that's just worthy of a little bit of extra dig, Okay, so we got to figure out how much of this we have time to get into. Here's the deal. Don't lose me here. If you lose me, it's okay. We'll elbow you when we get back to theology and the thrust of the lesson. But it's like a five-minute commercial break. The, New Te- the Old Testament, this Isaiah passage was written, oh, five, six hundred years plus before Jesus. By the time of Jesus, this passage has been translated into Greek by Jewish scholars. This passage has been translated into Aramaic, the local vernacular, by Jewish scholars. The Greek version is called the, anybody? Septuagint. The Aramaic version is called the Targum. And it's really useful to read those because we get a fuller glimpse of how the culture around Jesus, including the New Testament church, read and understood these passages. So, for example, if we were reading the Targum, Behold my servant, the Targum, the, 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 the Targum's not a Christian product. The Targum is a Jewish product putting this passage into Aramaic. It was at first done orally and just memorized. But in that first century time of Jesus was actually written down probably before the Luke passage that we were reading. Interestingly, that inserts, the Targum inserts a word here after servant. 
Do you know what word it inserts? Messiah. Anointed. Behold, my servant, the Messiah, shall act wisely. The church understood fully who this passage is talking about. Now, the New Testament church, by and large, used the Greek translation of the Old Testament. Especially out in the Mediterranean world, most Jews, and certainly Greeks, did not read Hebrew as familiarly as they did Greek. So, for example, when we read Paul quoting from the Old Testament, he quotes from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. So when you read this passage in the Greek, the Bible, if you will, of the first century church, it's fascinating. 53 starts with, it addresses the Lord. It says, Lord, who has had faith? That word believed, pistuo is the verb, pistis is the noun, it just means faith. Who's had faith? Who's put their trust? Who's put their faith? Who's put their belief in what he's heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, this is a song and a poem in the Hebrew. And what makes Hebrew poetry so beautiful and meaningful is something called parallel. Yeah, that's up here. Parallel. That's, I think it's parallel. Parallel. Those are parallel lines. Do you know why parallel planes never meet? They take off from parallel runways. Um... Math humor is really going out of style. Um, parallel means they, they, they don't meet. They mean, it means, but they do. It, it, it's, it's where things, here it is in, in, in Hebrew, it's where you say a phrase. We'll call it phrase A. And then you say phrase B in a way that is parallel to phrase A. To give phrase A more meaning and phrase B more meaning. Like I could say, um, my sweet wife, the love of my life. And B tells you that not only is my wife sweet but that I love her. Or A helps you understand B better because not only do I love my wife, but she's sweet. See, it's a parallel structure. And I say that because that's what we have here. So look at this parallel structure for a moment and it's going to really make this mean something special, I hope. Phrase A is who, am I on the, yeah, who, has believed, put faith, let's use that because that's a good Christian buzzword. Who has put faith in what he's heard? 
That's A. B, to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Now, phrase B is supposed to help us understand phrase A. So how is it parallel? Well, who is the question being asked? Has put faith in, that's has the arm of the Lord. Those go together. Let's make those blue, uh, orange. Who has put faith, the arm of the Lord, has been revealed what he's heard. Who's put faith in what he's heard? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? You put your faith in the arm of the Lord. You put your faith in the arm of the Lord. That's the, that thought is permeating this passage. You say, well, I didn't know God had arms. <laughs> he doesn't. When the Hebrew speaks of the arm of the Lord, the arm of the Lord is a reference to his power, his deeds, his actions, to, to what he does powerfully. Um, it's like Deuteronomy 9.29. They are your people and your heritage, talking about Israel that he's brought out of Egypt. Whom you brought out by your great power, by your outstretched arm. See, when it references the arm of God, it's referencing what he's done in power. Uh, Exodus, same type thing. Uh, Exodus fifteen sixteen says um, another good passage to illustrate this is what the arm of the Lord is. It's talking about how the people are moving through to go conquer the Holy Land, but they're moving through the wilderness. And as they move through the wilderness, everybody's scared to death of them. Terror and dread fall upon the Israelites because of the greatness of your arm. They're still as a stone. Because of the greatness of, you see, the arm of God is, is what God can do. It's his strength. Look at another good passage for that is Psalm seventy-seven fifteen. Psalm seventy-seven fifteen. You, with your arm, redeemed your people, the children of Jacob and Joseph. So Isaiah 53 says, Who's put their faith in the saving power of God? To whom this has been revealed? The Greek translation uses apocalypto there. Uh, it's been revealed. It's a revelation. Who's put their faith in the saving work of God? That's the question we should be asking when we read the story of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53. If we go back to the PowerPoint, I'll put it up here. Isaiah 53 has some interesting things to say about the suffering servant. It says that 
The servant of God, the Messiah, will suffer at the hands of humans. This is prophetic. The passage says, he was, he, the suffering servant. The Messiah was despised and rejected by men. He was a man of sorrows. Hold on, I'm losing my microphone. <laughs> yeah. He was a man of sorrows. He was acquainted with grief. He was as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised. We didn't esteem him. We didn't hold him up as God. We didn't hold him up as Messiah. We treated him like garbage. He was an outcast. We had nothing to do with him. He was not the one who walked into the room and we said, would you sit at the center of the table? Can I take your coat? He was the one that we didn't want to deal with. He suffers at the hands of humans. But the suffering servant in Isaiah 53 also suffers at the hands of God. God's hand brings punishment to the Messiah. Throughout Isaiah 53, you read passages like this in verses 4, 6, and 10. We esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. God did it. And the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. It was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Jesus Christ suffers from the hand of God. Now you ought to be saying, well, that's not very fair. What did Jesus do to God? Nothing. Thought you said God was just. He is. Well, then how can a just God do that to Jesus? Because Jesus took our sins. God was putting on the substitute what belonged on you and me. And we got a choice. We can believe and put our faith in the saving arm of the Lord. Or we can endure being smitten by God and being crushed. We can endure the wrath of God. So the, the, the Messiah, the servant of God, who suffers in Isaiah 53, suffers at the hands of men, he suffers at the hands of God, but the important question is, why did he suffer? Why does God turn his back on Jesus? Isaiah 53 answers it and says, surely, without a doubt, this is, this is 101. This is not open to debate. This is as certain as 2 plus 2 is 4. As surely as 2 plus 2 is 4. He, the Messiah, the servant, Jesus, has borne, carried our griefs, 
carried our sorrows. He was pierced for our transgressions. Yes, God crushed him, but he was crushed for our iniquities. All we, like sheep, have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on the Messiah, the servant, the suffering one, the substitute. He has laid on him the iniquity of us all. There is a beyond understanding transfer that takes place here. Not just some cosmic concept, but a true transfer of our guilt is taken by Jesus. Who then suffers the crushing consequences of the wrath of God. Why did he suffer for us? So what does this mean for us? Isaiah 53 tells us, upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. With his wounds, we are healed. He bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the sinners. That's how this all fits together. That's how the love of God that hates evil and sin, that justly punishes evil and sin, can find peace with us. Heaven's love, mercy, and heaven's justice and purity meet at the cross of Christ. So, where do we go? Let's take action. Let's take action. I want to first understand God poured out his wrath on Jesus out of love for me. See, if I don't understand that God did that out of love, I have the danger of thinking that he's an arbitrary and capricious God. I have, I have the, the, the concern that I may start thinking poorly of God. But if I understand that this is what God did out of love, it was not a plan B either. God knew from before he made us what it would cost to redeem us and already made that commitment so that he could make us as free-willed human beings who choose to follow him and choose to love him. Paul makes that abundantly clear in Ephesians. Before the foundations of the world, God chose us in him and he planned the death of Christ. It was his commitment to us. He never made us for destruction. He made us for fellowship and love. So we need to understand that this comes out of a God of love. That's why the first part of this CV that we dealt with was how God is a loving God. Think about it. John 3.16 says, God so loved the world that he gave his only son that 
echoing Isaiah 53. Whoever believes in him, the strong arm of the Lord, won't perish. He perished for us. Now, in the greatness of God, he was not abandoned to hell. But he was brought forth again and resurrected and he reigns. But he reigns as a crucified Messiah. You see the picture of him in Revelation. He still bears the marks of the price that he paid. Somehow in the midst of an unchanging God, we have this paradox that God, one God, could not be isolated, could not be separated, and yet somehow was. It's a paradox. It's hard to grasp what all happened. I don't think we have all of those answers. But Scripture gives us glimpses. Take action now. Number two, I'm going to accept my sin as sin. If we're not willing to address the severity of what sin really is, then we're going to minimize the death of Christ on our behalf. If we're going to say, yeah, I'm pretty good. My good outweighs my bad. We're going to minimize what Jesus did on the cross. If we have within us a concept of, hey, okay, the, but, but, but my sins aren't the really bad ones. We're going to minimize the death of Christ. All of our sins are the bad ones deserving the wrath of God. And I'm going to accept my sin as sin. I'm going to know that though they do, though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things, and Paul included in his list gossip and envy, not simply murder, those who practice such things deserve to die. They not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. Well, nobody's perfect. No. I'm going to accept my sin as sin and recognize wretched man that I am, who's going to save me from this? Because that's when I see the cross of Christ that changes everything. It changes everything. Peter in 1 Peter references back to Isaiah 53, the suffering servant. Look at what he says in 1 Peter 2, 21 through 25. For to this you've been called, because Christ also suffered, the suffering servant, suffered for you. He's left you an example. He himself bore our sins in his body on that tree, that we might die to sin and live in righteousness. By his wounds... You have been healed. It's a direct quote out of Isaiah 53. Which brings me back to my final bottom line. As my uh, professor who taught this to me explained. And I closed with this last week. It's good enough to close with it two weeks in a row. Don't forget it. Dr. Harvey Floyd, the most simple thing about the gospel is that Christ died for our sins. And the most profound thing about the gospel is that Christ died for our sins.
next week. I think we're going to talk about the Trinity as we continue to work through God's CV. Can I bless you in the name of Jesus? Father, thank you so much for the opportunity to speak of the saving work that you wrought on the cross on our behalf. We are sinners. And we walk in the forgiveness of Jesus that makes us now righteous in your sight. We thank you for taking that price and giving us the righteousness of Christ. We pray these things humbly in his name. Amen.